Well, how do you like this title? Punishing to the third and fourth generation. Sounds like um, maybe an encouraging message here, but these are some words that come up repeatedly during these chapters in Exodus, and so I think we should spend some time talking about them. I actually think this is perhaps one of the most important subjects we could discuss of all. We read this last time. If you remember, we went through the Ten Commandments. And the second commandment, do not bow down to any idol or worship it because I am the Lord your God. I tolerate no rivals. I bring punishment on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generation. Okay, how do you interpret those words? Uh, um, Is that true in a very literal sense? Maybe you are... um, have devoted your life to the poor, and um, you know you love God with all your heart, you love your neighbor as yourself, had a really bad event that happened today, was this because of something your grandfather or great-grandfather did? Is it, uh, how do we understand these words? I will punish to the third and fourth generation. And last time we talked about Moses' desire. Remember, he asked, please let me see the dazzling light of your presence. And the Lord answered, I will make all my splendor pass before you, and in your presence I will pronounce my sacred name. And we said several times that name in the Bible has a much more significant meaning than when we just refer to someone's name today. Name encompasses the person, the character of the individual. And so significant here then that as God comes by, passes by Moses, we don't get a detailed description of um, what God looks like, Okay, instead, this is the description. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, pronounced his holy name, the Lord. The Lord then passed in front of him and called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, who is not easily angered, who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin. And we said, uh, this verse is a beautiful description. God comes by, pronounces his holy name, And then we have all these uh, descriptive features of God's character. Okay, but it's much easier to read this verse if we put the dot, 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 and we don't read the rest. Okay, because the rest is, but I will not fail to punish children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation for the sins of their parents. Okay, there was a a fairly popular book uh, that came out. It was the book of the month just a few months ago here at the local Christian bookstore that said this is the most perfect verbal description of God's character, which is love, yes, but is also justice. And by justice, really it meant retributive punishment. Okay, how do we understand these words? Well, many people are um, can't make sense of it. Thomas Jefferson, for example, referred to this, and he said the command to punish to the third and fourth generation is contrary to every principle of moral judgment. How do we interpret them? Well, um, for this, we really need to go to, to Ezekiel and compare the two, okay? Because Ezekiel would come back to this very same subject of punishment down to the third and fourth generation. It's a long passage, but I think it's, it's very important, so we're just going to read essentially the whole chapter. Okay, the Lord spoke to me and said, What is this proverb people keep repeating in the land of Israel? The parents ate the sour grapes, but the children got the sour taste. As surely as I am the living God, says the sovereign Lord, you will not repeat this proverb in Israel anymore. 
Okay, and this ties in very much. We talked about the potter clay analogy in Romans 9 before. Okay, and um, uh, this, how do we interpret this? Does God predetermine? Some are created to be vessels of his wrath, some to be vessels of his love. Um, very much related here to this subject of God punishing here to the third and fourth generation. So just as we read the chapter, um, let's see what light this sheds on it. So first we have a description of a good man. Suppose there is a truly good man, righteous and honest. He doesn't worship the idols of the Israelites or eat the sacrifices offered at forbidden shrines. He doesn't seduce another man's wife or have intercourse with a woman during her period. He doesn't cheat or rob anyone. He returns what a borrower gives him as security. He feeds the hungry. He gives clothing to the naked. He doesn't lend money for profit. He refuses to do evil and gives an honest decision in any dispute. Such a man obeys my commands and carefully keeps my laws, he is righteous, and he will live, says the Sovereign Lord. So we don't have any problem with that. Okay, but now the story goes on to his son. Suppose this man has a son who robs and kills, who does any of the things that the father never did. He eats sacrifices offered at forbidden shrines and seduces other men's wives. He cheats the poor. He robs. He keeps what a borrower gives him as security. He goes to pagan shrines, worships disgusting idols, and lends money for profit. Will he live? No, he will not. He has done all these disgusting things, and so he will die. He will be to blame for his own death. Okay, so maybe those are easy. We have a good man, righteous man, a man who isn't. Okay, each of them will be, uh, in a sense, rewarded in turn. Now, here's where it gets difficult. This bad man has a son. Now, suppose this second man has a son. Okay, now we're in the third generation. He sees all the sins his father practiced, but does not follow his example. He doesn't worship the idols of the Israelites or eat the sacrifices offered at forbidden shrines. Let's go through the same list every time. He doesn't seduce another man's wife or oppress anyone or rob anyone. He returns what a borrower gives him as security. He feeds the hungry, gives clothing to the naked, refuses to do evil, doesn't lend money for profit. He keeps my laws, obeys my commands. He will not die. Because of his father's sins, he will certainly live. Okay, and then it goes on to summarize. His father, on the other hand, the person who was bad, cheated and robbed, always did evil to everyone, and so he died because of the sins he had committed. But you ask, why shouldn't the son suffer, the good son, because of his father's sins? The answer is that the son did what was right and good. He kept my laws, followed them carefully, and so he will certainly live. It is the one who sins who will die. A son is not to suffer because of his father's sins, nor a father because of the sins of his son. Good people will be rewarded for doing good, and evil people will suffer for the evil they do. Now that seems uh, pretty clear. It goes through it so many times here that God here does not punish the son for the sins of his father. So I guess the question would be, well, why then would it be described this way um, in Exodus? Why do we have the words? Why didn't we instead have these words in Exodus? And uh, I think key to our whole understanding of the Old Testament is to see God meeting people where they are. And maybe as a challenge here, let's just ask the question, does God approve of polygamy? Well, does he? Hey, everyone's shaking their head no. Okay, but what do you do with a verse like this? Now we're right back here in Exodus 21. 
if a man takes a second wife, now what do you mean? If a man takes a second wife, why not I forbid polygamy? No, but if a man takes a second wife, he must continue to give his first wife the same amount of food and clothing and the same rights that she had before. Now, there are lots of verses where uh, this was not, uh, I mean, it was forbidden. Okay, but yet we have Abraham and David and Solomon and all these people that had many wives. Okay, so what we see here is God meeting people again where they are. Boy, this is certainly not the ideal, light years from the ideal. But hey, if you have a second wife, uh, let's at least move a step in the right direction. Okay, and still give the first wife, don't just throw her out on the street, which is uh, kind of the common practice. Okay, God stoops to a people that are in a practice that is uh, really abominable. Okay, but instead of leaving them, he reaches them and tries to bring them in the right direction. I think one of the best illustrations of this is, uh, again, in the life of Jesus, where Jesus talked about divorce. And the Pharisees said, well, hold on. What do you mean we can't divorce? We've got it right here in the Old Testament. Of course we can divorce. Okay, and so they came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? Well, of course, that's why they're there. They had read the scriptures. There are all these divorce laws in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along and says, don't divorce. Okay, this is, this is the trap. And Jesus says, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Okay, well, here's the obvious question then. Well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? And I think they could not imagine Jesus would have a good answer to this. Well, why is it in the Old Testament? Okay, very critical here. Jesus understanding. I think it opens up a whole new window on some of these difficult um, stories and rules in the Old Testament. Okay, here's how Jesus inter interpreted those rules. He replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. Okay, so God gave a whole bunch of rules that were not what he originally intended. Okay, but to meet them where they were as a concession to their hard hearts, he gave these rules. Okay, perhaps another way of thinking of it, I love this verse in Hosea, where God would say, the people of Israel are as stubborn as mules how can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? That's why the Old Testament is often so violent. God is not reaching sensitive, gentle uh, lambs who are attentive to his voice. He's reaching stubborn mules, and uh, if you've ever had a mule, uh, you need to use some measures to get that mule moving along that uh, may not be just a gentle voice. Okay, so uh, I'm even going to ask the question, then, how does God punish and this is intimately tied to a number of subjects here, which there's no way we can go all the way through today. Okay, we're going to kind of start on this subject by talking about God's wrath, since that is uh, so much here at question. But um, how do we understand God's justice? What is God's justice? What about all these destructive Old Testament stories? Okay, we, we need to look at each individual story. How do we understand the flood? Was God punishing the wicked people of that day? Or was he rescuing the last man? Noah says he was the last man. How do we understand that? Uh, the cross, what punished Jesus at the cross? 
and of course the final end of sin and sinners. And um, almost every week someone comes down and asks, well, you know, is there somewhere I can get the slides? And uh, because there are so many topics here, uh, if you go to the website here, godscharacter.com, uh, I'm going to put up a link to some articles uh, that discuss some of this, just because uh, we have such little time to go through it today. We'll go through it all the way through the Bible study, okay? But uh, probably by tomorrow morning I should have some of this up and uh, you can uh, read through more of the, uh, the verses on all of this. Well, how do we understand God's wrath? First of all, we're looking at um, Hebrew literature, Greek, a different time and culture. And so what we usually do, though, is we read this with our Western ears. We hear the word wrath. And instead of perhaps taking everything the Bible has to say about wrath, well, let's just look it up in the dictionary. Okay, that's what it is, God's wrath. Read the description of the word wrath. Okay, is that how we should decide things? Well, I think... In my understanding, there are very few things that are as redundant in the Bible as a subject of God's wrath. Uh, and just read through the Bible and look for it every time you see it. And what's the description around God's wrath? For the first year medical students, we just talked about the concept of planned redundancy in the neuroscience course, that we try to repeat concepts several times that are important. Okay? And the Bible is very redundant on the subject of God's wrath. So we're going to go through uh, some of the verses here. Let me just give you an example of perhaps reading something with our 21st century mindset and failing to incorporate how people in that time understood it. The words here in Malachi, again quoted in Romans 9, Esau and Jacob were brothers, but I have loved Jacob and his descendants and have hated Esau and his descendants. This is a very difficult verse. Okay, and we can contrast here with lots of verses. God loved Jacob, hated Esau. What does that mean? We contrast it with the verse here in Jeremiah where the Lord would say, the people I love are doing evil things. Okay, now does God, how does God feel about sinners? We often say he hates sin but loves the sinner. But this verse might suggest he hates the sinner also. How do we put this together? Well, again, we have to understand what did it mean in that time? How was it understood? How did they use literature in this time? And uh, this refers to something that's often referred to as uh, oriental hyperbole. Hyperbole, as you may know, is a rhetorical exaggeration, not intended to be taken literally, and that produces emphasis in serious literature. It's made to contrast between two different ways. It's to emphasize the extremes. Okay, this was very commonly used in this time, and Jesus used this. For example, where he would say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, so are you a Christian? Do you hate your parents, your wife, brothers and sisters? Okay, just checking. Okay, now if we're going to take the words literally here in Malachi... Should we take the words of Jesus literally as well? If you're a Christian, you hate your parents. Well, some newer translations try to soften this a bit and perhaps try to uh, get to the meaning, perhaps a little bit more in the New uh, Living Translation. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Okay, perhaps tries to get behind the meaning of what it means to hate your parents. Okay, so turning here to the subject of God's wrath, and it's amazing how this goes all the way through the Bible, um, all the way back to the books of Moses. Let's start with Deuteronomy 32. 
God's words, my anger or wrath will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots and the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. Okay, if you ever read a verse like this, um, please don't close your Bible and go to bed. Uh, you have to keep reading. Whenever we get on the subject of God's wrath here, keep reading a few verses on. Okay, it may get worse, actually, but um, uh, as we just read on here a few verses, what happens when God shoots all of his arrows? Okay, I think it goes on in Deuteronomy 32 to clarify quite well. Well, they failed to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and 10,000 by only two? Hey, here's why. The Lord their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. And this is the redundant relationship that you will see again and again and again around the words God's wrath, abandoned, handed over, given up. Okay, what did Jesus cry as he died? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me, handed me over? Okay, it's the same meaning here. We should associate God's wrath with being abandoned or handed over. Hey, again here in Deuteronomy, this time chapter 31. God would now say, they will abandon me and worship the pagan gods of the land they are about to enter. Okay, when that happens, I will become angry with them. Okay, again, what does God do in his anger? I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and then they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. Okay, God in his wrath hands over, gives up, forsakes. Okay, and there are consequences, natural consequences, horrible consequences of that. Okay, we maybe think of it this way. The, the marriage analogy is used so often in the Bible. We are to be the bride in relationship, intimacy with God. Okay, and when we are, it's wonderful. The question is, what happens when we rebel? We decide we are no longer interested in being in relationship with God. What does God do to us? And really, when we've made that choice, uh, the, what's, what are God's options? Okay, does he give us the freedom to rebel? Really, the only other choice here, isn't it, to become a puppet master? Okay, does God pull the strings if we decide we're not interested? Okay, and uh, God, my understanding, values freedom supremely. Okay, he does give us the freedom to rebel and to suffer the consequences. He does not... Uh, begin to rewire our minds against our will. He will allow us to suffer consequences. Okay, and uh, I think rather than just maybe quoting some lofty words here, we need specific stories of where God in his wrath did something in the Bible. Okay, so let's go through four very specific stories. First of all, when the, uh, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, this is described as an act of God's wrath. Here in Psalm 78, hey, here's the description. They angered him with their heathen places of worship and with their idols, they made him furious. God was angry when he saw it. So he rejected his people completely in his wrath. He abandoned his tent in Shiloh, the home where he had lived among us. He allowed our enemies to capture the covenant box, the symbol of his power and glory. Again, a very specific description of a story in God's wrath he allowed he handed over. Okay, there's probably more. Uh, I had to cut out so many verses here just about the Babylonian captivity. Again and again in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, this is described as an action of God's wrath. 
Okay, here it is in Jeremiah. I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living in the city. People and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. That seemed pretty clear. If this was a prophecy, and we have the words of God, I will kill. When we interpret that prophecy, um, well, very clear, God's words. We don't go against that. Well, just read on the description. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease. It will be given over, handed over, forsaken to the king of Babylonia. Notice he's the one who's going to burn it to the ground. Again, God in his wrath handed them over. And Jeremiah is, is probably the best book of all to understand this subject. What does the punishing? Here in Jeremiah 2, God would say, you've brought this on yourself by abandoning the Lord your God when he led you on his way. Notice, your own wickedness will correct you and your unfaithful ways will punish you. Okay, who does the punishing? You should know and see how evil and bitter it is if you abandon the Lord your God. In a couple chapters later, Judah, you've brought this on yourself by the way you've lived, by the things you've done. Notice, your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. Okay, it's very different if we understand sin to be a malignant, intrinsically destructive property that does its own destroying, or whether we see God needing to extrinsically do something to people who sin and rebel. Okay, later on in Jeremiah, just to, it's, this concept is, uh, I think, not uh, appreciated, and so I, I feel like I need to put a lot of verses in here to make a good case for it. But in Jeremiah 25, the Lord has abandoned his people like a lion that leads its caves, the horrors of war, and the Lord's fierce anger. There it is, anger, wrath, with God abandoning. Okay, and after the Babylonian captivity, we read that the Lord, the God of Israel, told me to go to the king of Zedekiah of Judah, and he said, I, the Lord, will hand this city over to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it down. And it's very clearly, uh, very clear historically, that it was the king of Babylon that came, killed the people, burned down the city. Okay, same thing in Ezekiel, who wrote from Babylon, but just before the third uh, invasion, where God would say, you will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you, like a blazing fire. Well, what does that look like? I will hand you over to brutal men, experts at destruction. Okay, and the historical account here in Chronicles, the last chapter here, 2 Chronicles 36, describes very clearly what happened. The king killed the young men of Judah, even in the temple. He had no mercy on anyone, young or old, man or woman, sick or healthy. The God handed them all over to him, even though it was described as an action of God's wrath. And lamentations here. This is the most concise description of God's wrath. On the day of his anger, he abandoned even his temple. Okay, so we have the capture of the covenant box, the Babylonian captivity, and the Assyrian captivity. Same thing. Okay, this time from Hosea. How about these words? God saying, I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. And here it is again. I will abandon my people until they have suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. As they suffer the consequences of not being 
with their God. Okay, the book of Hosea, uh, so uh, emotional here, the description of God as his people are going off into captivity. Uh, I mean, you really can hear the, the tears in God's voice here, the description. They insist on turning away from me. They will cry out because of the yoke that is on them, but not one will lift it from them. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? Okay, and finally, a New Testament example. Okay, Paul would warn about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. The Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Okay, and so he would say this. In this way, they have brought to completion all the sins they have always committed, and now God's anger has at last come down on them. Okay, how did Paul understand the subject of God's wrath, God's anger? Okay, and I think Paul just put it all together. He obviously knew his Old Testament very well, and in Romans 1, I think, is the best, clearest description of what God's wrath is and how God punishes. Romans 1, God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sins and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself made it plain. So the description here in Romans 1 is God's wrath and God's punishment. Okay, and I think Paul goes out of his way to make it clear to us how God punishes. Just listen to the words. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. And so, what does God do to these people? And so, God has given these people over to do the filthy things their hearts desire. And they do shameful things with each other. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself. Because they do this, God has given them over to shameful passions. Because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God, what does he do? He has given them over. He allows them to leave. He allows them to corrupt their own minds, okay, so that they do the things they should not do. Three times, what does God do in his wrath? He hands over, gives over, forsakes, Okay, and that leads to punishment. So uh, some people, uh, Greg Boyd here used the term uh, divine jujitsu. If you know about this uh, Japanese martial arts here, uh, which really means a way of yielding, okay, where the force of the attacker is turned back on them, okay, rather than having to go back and, and punish uh, the attacker. Maybe that's not a helpful analogy. What about this? We just think of so many things in our common everyday life. You step off a cliff. Um, does God need to set in motion the process of gravity so that you fall and hurt yourself? Or is that a natural consequence? You don't study for a month and take a break during medical school. And uh, I'm just uh, going to let it slide for a while. hope I pick it up in lecture. Um, <laughs> Do teachers need to do something? Switch the answers around on the test that you take, or is it a natural consequence? You don't brush your teeth for a month or two, three or four. Dentists, in their wrath, need to sneak into your bedroom at nighttime and put cavities, or is it, uh, is it a natural consequence of not brushing your teeth? You have patients who smoke, and you know the bad thing about smoking? What's bad about smoking? It's that it really upsets doctors and they do things like uh, create cancer and so on. Uh, but can you see why this is so serious? 
because uh, imagine this were the view of doctors. You know what's really bad about smoking is that um, doctors do horrible things to smokers. Now imagine that uh, that was the description. Wouldn't you want to be an advocate and go out and describe, no, come to me as a smoker and I will help you. Okay, if the description is that doctors are vengeful towards their smoking patients, okay, how eager would you want to make an appointment uh, with your doctor if you happen to be a smoker? Okay, so this is a very important subject. We read these words, but uh, I think uh, this is very nice and concise. In, in the King James, the wages of sin is death, or here in the Good News Bible, sin pays its wage, death. What pays the wage? Sin pays its wage, death. And here we get to some very uh, serious, uh, uh, perhaps deep theology here about uh, the cross and Jesus' words. And we talked about God's wrath as handing over, forsaking, giving up. Okay, and Paul would concisely describe the death of Jesus. Because of our sins, he was given over to die. Okay, what happened to Jesus? Um, how do we understand the father's role in the death of his son? How was the father involved? Did the father punish his son on the cross? What did the punishing? And uh, this verse here in Isaiah, we often read this, but uh, it's, it's quite interesting, the description of what did the punishing at the cross. Isaiah 53, he was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said, he's a nobody. He suffered and endured great pain for us. But notice, but we thought his suffering was punishment from God. Haven't many thought that. But notice, he was wounded and crushed because of or by our sins by taking our punishment. Now, would our punishment be an extrinsically imposed punishment? Or again, does sin do its own punishment? He made us completely well. Okay, this is a huge and very difficult subject, but I think at the cross, we really do get a glimpse, perhaps the clearest glimpse, at the intrinsic malignant nature of sin, which really is a rebellious, distrustful attitude towards God. So we'll come to, back to this much more. Uh, next time, we will talk about Leviticus and the sanctuary system. Let's pray. Father, please be with each one of us as we think about these important things, as we talk to you, as we read our Bibles, as we try to come closer to an understanding of uh, the reality of uh, all of these things that are of such great importance. Thank you that you've given us so much evidence uh, to base our understanding. Amen.